0: This is the second of a two-part special on pressure and PTSD. In the last episode... This was an attempt murder case that we have been dealing with against Constable Douglas Hunt.
1: That is what started me on the journey of giving myself permission to be, you know, mentally injured and to put the work in to get back.
0: Constable Lane Douglas Hunt responded to a shoplifting call at this downtown 7-Eleven. As she was leaving the convenience store, she found herself in a fight for her life. Her head grabbed,
2: her eyes gouged, and her neck and hands slashed with a knife. Toughness is the ability of people to focus on what's important now, in the moment.
1: It could have been a murder trial if the blade had been one sixteenth of an inch closer, it would have entered her carotid artery. But it was Douglas Hunt's quick reflexes and training that saved her life
2: and then, then the post event and recovery afterwards.
1: And I did and now I'm, you know, living my best life with PTSD and it's it's totally okay.
0: Brian, to you now who spotted it as Lane described her little breakdown, not so little breakdown. When you see someone like that reacting to one of during one of your sessions or, or around you given what you've seen and experienced yourself as an officer, but now giving training this is a really interesting question that I didn't think I'd be able to ask, but it's it's really pertinent to ask because a lot of the listeners who tune in, there are some who are going to be going through their own stuff. There are some who are wanting to learn how they can handle stuff better. There are others who are just curious cats and they just like hearing amazing stories like Lane just shared. But some of us will be in contact with another person. We'll have someone close to us who we see some of these things in. We know our friend or our partner or our teammate needs help, needs support, but because of some of the prejudices and the biases that Lane's described, it's hard to even have that conversation. How do you reach out to, I mean, you did it to a stranger, but how does, tell us how you went about doing that to Lane to make it okay for her to begin her journey to recovery and how you might suggest people do that to people they are and they do have a relationship with where they can support them, but people don't even know how to start that conversation.
2: You know, and It's an interesting thing. I think part of it is just acknowledging that whatever you're feeling is perfectly normal. Whatever you're feeling is okay. I have a lot of officers that'll come up to me after presentations and say, well, I was I was experiencing this or I'm feeling this and is that normal? And my answer is always yes. So if you're feeling it, it's normal for you. And it's different for everybody, and so I think the key is is just to first of all, you know, let the person know that you're not there to solve their problem, that you're there for them, and that it's okay what you're experiencing. It's okay. It's completely natural, and we might think at the time that it's an unnatural response, but it's completely natural. And what's happened, and the challenge for Alan, public safety for law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, is that it wasn't just that event. So, I mean, that was a big event in Lane's life. But Lane had been a police officer for, she said, about two and a half years. So it's two and a half years of secondary traumatic stress. So it's two and a half years of being exposed to other people's pain, suffering, and trauma going to the fatal traffic crashes, dealing with the child abuse victims, dealing with the rape victims, telling families that a loved one has been killed in a car crash. And so what officers are dealing with is they're constantly exposed to other people's pain, suffering, and trauma. And if we don't make it okay to get the help we need on a regular basis, to talk to somebody, to access or utilize peer support, and Lane's very involved in peer support now, then what officers are gonna do or other people in any profession, we see this in nurses, we see this in doctors, we see it in paramedics, firefighters, military, law enforcement, is they're just gonna keep stuffing it down, stuffing it down, stuffing it down. So if you think about it, if you've ever watched shows on hoarders or you know, if police officers have been in hoarders' houses, that's what we are, we're hoarders of emotional trauma. At home, we take the garbage out all the time so it doesn't build up. But at work, we stuff it down, stuff it down, stuff it down. And now we get a major event like Lane was thrust into. And now on top of that, you have people that are saying crap like women shouldn't be cops or women shouldn't be out there on their own or whatever. My take on it is when that individual went out that day with the the design, the goal to kill a cop is he made a massive mistake by picking Lane. There's a lot of cops he could have picked that he would have prevailed in that violent encounter and they would have been going to an officer's funeral. But he flat out picked the wrong cop because he picked somebody that he made the mistake of looking at this young female officer and thinking this will be easy. And he was not aware of all of the training and all of the preparation, mental, physical and training preparation that she'd put in to prepare for an event. And that's what allowed her to prevail in the event. And then what we have learned in the intervening years is that we need to make sure that we look after people afterwards and that we have culturally sensitive professionals that we can send them to. Because I've talked to officers who said, you know what, I went and met with this psychologist because it was mandated by my department, and the psychologist had a breakdown here in my story. So that doesn't do anything for an officer when the, the mental health professional you're dealing with has a breakdown. You are listening to Toughness, and if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... Trauma is a normal part of the law enforcement experience, to experience trauma and other people's trauma, but it's not a normal part of the human experience. So-
0: It's an important point there that I think the listeners should recognise and and be okay with is that while while we're talking here about talking to someone, letting it out, getting support, going to share some of the trauma and work through it, it's not necessarily always with a psychologist. Whilst getting professional help is definitely recommended for some severe things, at first it could just be peer support because in some ways for some of these events that are not – normal and that are incredibly traumatic that are very hard to understand for people who haven't been there before it's often better to be shared with another colleague who's actually seen it dealt with it seen someone else fail at handling it so we can talk with knowledge as opposed to just raw wow that happened that's like that's pretty full-on and so really important to stress that just because we're saying seeking help it doesn't mean you have to go to see a psychologist a psychiatrist i'm not saying not to do that because that's absolutely beneficial. But sometimes the first step is just talking to someone who knows what it's like.
2: Absolutely. And I think Lane mentioned listening to Bob Delaney speak. So Bob, uh, back in the 70s, went deep undercover, infiltrated the mafia in New York and New Jersey, lived that life for three years, came out, spent another 10 years in the troopers dealing with the court cases, and then went on to have a very successful career, spent 25 years as an NBA referee, basically hiding out in the open. But one of the things Bob talks about is the importance of peer-to-peer counseling, talking to somebody else. Now, here's one of the challenges for law enforcement, is that Lane mentioned that she's told you're not allowed to talk to anybody about this because of the pending court case. So in some jurisdictions, like I was in Florida two weeks ago doing leadership training, and in Florida, their peer support people have the same level of those conversations. So if if I'm talking to as if she was a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but that's not the same everywhere. In some places, peer support are concerned that they could get called in to testify as to what the officer told him. So it's a balance. So Lane needs to be able to talk to me about what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, help to normalize that process without doing the normal cop thing and wanting to find out exactly what happened and getting into the details of the event. So it's it can be a, a difficult challenge, and it's an additional challenge for law enforcement professionals. It can take up to two years. Let's say Lane had shot that individual, and he died of those those injuries, it can take years for an officer to get told that you're not going to get prosecuted for murder, for shooting that individual. So in that entire time, this is hanging over them. They're told you can't talk to anybody. And they're concerned about, am I going to be prosecuted or charged with murder? So there's a whole bunch of different elements here that in a lot of cases are unique to the law enforcement profession. Yeah. But I think the the biggest thing people can do is just say, "Okay, this is what I've noticed. What do you need? Uh, what can I do to help? Are you all right?" and then to avoid, you know, giving trying me trying to solve Lane's problem. Probably what Lane needs is for me to just listen a lot and then to let her know that, you know what, it's it's okay to feel that way. It's completely natural and normal for you after what you've experienced to experience what you're experiencing now. So understand that what you're having is a very human response to something that is not part of most people's human experience. Trauma is a normal part of the law enforcement experience to experience trauma and other people's trauma, but it's not a normal part of the human experience. And so we have these expectations that law enforcement officers can do superhuman things, but they're human beings doing a very challenging job. So we just need to keep that human piece in mind all the time.
0: Yeah, great point there. And I think that I might reword it slightly in saying that trauma is not a regular part of the human experience, but many humans experience some form of trauma along the way, probably not to the extent that Lane's described there. But our ability to process adverse emotional and psychological events is, is A, a great predictor of whether we're going to have an enjoyable, fulfilling life, but also B, just whether we can be there for the other people that, who are around us who may be going through something that we've already dealt with. And I think that was a, an element there that you mentioned of being able to – I'm as you described some of that, Brian, I was struck by the fact that it reminded me of many times as a performance coach I might be sitting with someone who's telling me about what they're dealing with whether it's they can't concentrate, whether it's their wife has left them and they still have to go out and perform tonight, whether it's the coaches told me I'm not coming back next year, whatever it might be. These are significant interrupters of their mental and emotional experience and that we might talk for an hour and they do the uh, emotional vomit. It's not the physical vomit that Lane described before, but they vomit up their feelings and at the end of it I'm like, okay, well, I feel like okay, I've got to do something here. I've got to help them. The best thing they could do is just get it out and put it on the table and then they go back to work a little cleaner a little lighter and a little more able to focus on the now a little more able to tune into what's important now as opposed to what's sitting in the back of my brain and it won't let me be here so sometimes just talking and not trying to fix things is at least a good first step the second step though which brings us all full circle back to one of the things you said earlier lane was finding a way finding a practice finding Developing ways of coping that are not counterproductive or not avoidant, but they're actually like, here's a way I either process things or I learn to saddle up and I carry that, but I carry it effectively and competently and with compassion for myself, but also presence in the situation. And so I'm curious to pick up where we left off, where you've spoken to Brian, you've started getting help and you're working through now to, as you described, living your best life. What's one or two of the key practices that you have employed to help you be able to still go out? Because I imagine you've still gone out, as I described your resume earlier, you've still gone out into some badass situations since then and obviously performed with aplomb. So how have you managed to do that? What practices have helped you face those same stressful situations and not implode again?
1: I in the last few years have really incorporated mindfulness into my regular routine. I believe it's as important to work on your mental health as it is to work on your physical health. And physical health is something that I was good at. It's easy because you just got to, you just do it. But mental health, it's giving yourself that permission to be okay with not being okay. And then having a plan to deal with the days where you're not okay and so i've adopted a practice that it's actually i read a book called stress less accomplished more by emily fletcher and i really like her methodology because it's it's not an hour of meditation you know cups are busy we usually have a million things on the go you're trying to be a good family member you're you're doing a job that is long hours and you want to be physically fit so you're spending time training and then you should have a balance so I mean we're busy people and the idea of meditating for an hour is just not realistic so i really like emily fletcher's practice the ziva technique because it incorporates mindfulness meditation and manifestation which is visualizing and kind of picturing scenarios or your goals and in your mind going through watching them unfold the way that you want to see them unfold. So every morning I sit with my dog and I take, it's actually supposed to take 15 minutes, but I've whittled it down to seven minutes. And I practice, you know, I honor where I'm at today. What am I feeling? And what am I stressed about? And and I just, mindfulness is the practice of just being present in, in that thought, in that moment. And is this something that I need to put more time into? Or is this something that is a stress, but it's okay. And I'm allowed to feel stressed because, you know, this is something that's stressful and then practicing gratitude. So injecting that kind of positive thinking into your life, even if you wake up and you have the most stressful day imaginable, you know, still taking that time to inject that positivity by, by practicing gratitude. That's something I, I do every morning and it, it has done wonders for me. It's such a simple thing, but, you know, it's really, it is simple and it works. It's effective. And it has allowed me to continue doing a very stressful job, you know, post that incident. I, you know, I did sex crimes for five years and terrible files that I were very stressful. And that's like Brian said, you know, you're dealing with victims and, and it's the stress of other people that they put on you and and you want to do a good job. I've still and being an explosive tech, like there's some there's some pretty stressful moments in the explosive world. And and I'm I'm able to do all these things because I allow myself that time to be present in what I'm feeling and and give myself permission to feel all those things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really struck by how well you broke down those three different elements of it mindfulness or a mental practice really, which is I would describe them as things, same as uh, basketball practices, let's use that as an example, same as things that you do before or after a game, not in the game, right? I practice the day before a game, I shoot around before the game, I recover after the game. And you've really mentioned three things there. One, mindfulness, which is just being able to tune into what's happening for you at that moment, like be present. What am I feeling? What am I thinking? And not judging or reacting. Number two, being able to operationally prepare for I'm picturing what might go, what might happen and what I want to happen and and not necessarily how I feel and all the fantastic things around it, but what will I be doing? What are the steps? What are the processes? And three, the gratitude thing, which is kind of like filling up your bucket. Like that is a recovery process that allows you to, to build and maintain energy and, and create a bit of a buffer for some of the more stressful times. These three are great practices. You also then mentioned, though, something about the ability to – recognize when i'm not having a good day which mindfulness is great at developing that awareness so i can tune in and check that like as i'm entering this building and i know there's a criminal somewhere in the back of the warehouse i'm using one of the movie scenes that i can imagine right now right that i know that i'm not actually in the best state i'm either really tired i didn't sleep well i had a fight with my partner my boss told me i was getting a pay cut like whatever it is i'm not fully present and not, being, not trying to fix things or feel 100% because we can't. It's too late. I'm in the building and the criminal's over there and we have to go. What are your best tricks or techniques or the thing you found most effective for yourself when you do notice that you don't have your A game? You've come with your B or maybe even your C game and there's not much you can do to fix that right now. Having some of these long shifts is probably an example. Like I am really tired. I'm running on empty. I'm stressed. There's X, Y and Z happening. What do you do? To adjust to that? How do you make sure you can perform even when you only have your B game with you?
1: You know, it's funny. There's just simple little tricks that I tell myself to get myself mentally ready to enter that building. And it's one of the tricks that I have is that I actually have one of the components of my password to sign on to my computer is reminding myself that I'm fit, I'm trained, and I'm ready. And it's the one warrior's creed. And For some reason, it doesn't matter if I've not slept, it doesn't matter if I got crappy news from my my boss or, you know, I didn't do well on the last call. It's reminding myself that at the end of the day, I have trained thousands of hours to be here and my B game is probably still going to be good enough. And I reminded myself before I start every shift because I can't get onto my computer unless I remind myself. I'm fit, I'm trained, and I'm ready, and I'm I'm here to do this. So it's, you know, not every day is an A game, but that is okay because it's going to be enough. And on days where maybe it isn't enough because those stresses have, have, have gotten me to the point where I'm not confident that it's enough, maybe that's a day that I need to say, look, I shouldn't be here today. And I think it's also giving yourself permission to maybe, if you haven't slept for two days and, and you're not capable and competent, stepping into that building and saving a life or saving your partner's life or dealing with what's in front of you, maybe that's a day you need to take a time out and and address that. So Mm. I think it's just giving yourself permission to not be in the best, but doing everything you can to be your best. Yeah,
0: it's a great, uh, without putting too much of a psychologist's hat on, the concept of acceptance and commitment is really what you've just described there. Like, yeah, I'm not good, but I'm committed to doing this and I know that it's probably going to be okay and not stressing out about not being on your A game. Brian, have you got anything to add to that that question? I'm sure you get asked that a lot in your seminars. When we're trying to lead from the front, when we are trying to perform in these environments that are hostile, chaotic, unpredictable, what's the best way when we enter there, regardless mm-hmm. of whether we do have our A, B or C game, how would you explain to someone that that you did it or you would describe here's the best that I've heard and the best approach that I can recommend?
2: Well, I'm going to go back to what's important now. And what's important now is that you prepare in advance for these events is the time to to prepare mentally and physically for that event is, as you well know, is not at the time. So this is why the practice becomes so important. What's important now on the way to that call is to, if I'm finding myself getting jacked up, is there's things like breathing that I can do. I can run through that checklist or with my partner, we can have that conversation. Okay, so we're going to this. What's your job? What are you thinking about? What decisions might you have to make? What are you worried about? What could go wrong? So that we can use some of those questions to create that to prepare ourselves in advance so that we've thought about what could go wrong. We've had this conversation. I might do that by myself, or I might do it with my partner while we're going there. So that when we get there and we're going into this to clear this warehouse, or we're going into an active killer event, or we're going into whatever the situation is, we've already... Had got some clarity, and we're focused on what's important now. So if I focus on what's important now, I can set that other stuff aside, or I can ruminate about, man, this is a really shitty time, I'm really tired, you know, the Sarge was chewing my ass out, you know. And so that's why that question, I think, is so powerful, that if we get into the habit, the practice of that question, then we can use it on the way. I think the other thing from a preparation standpoint is to understand that it, we can take the power of little things. You read 10 minutes a day of a nonfiction book, you do that every day, you're gonna read 10 or 12 nonfiction books a year. Uh, You train 10 minutes a day, four days a week, 48 weeks out of the year, that's 32 hours of extra training a year. If you do it five days a week, that's 40 hours of extra training a year. I don't have to do two hours in my workout. If I can do an intense workout in 20 minutes, so I, I, we have this tendency to, to want to make big things out of it. And when we can chunk it down and chunk the event down, I think that's helpful. But I, would, I go back to what's important now and have people have that conversation and that thought on the way. And what it does is it sets the other stuff aside and allows me to focus on what's important in this particular moment at this particular call.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a common refrain for coaches of experts, which you obviously are, is the ability to direct your attention That's really what good coaching is, what good teaching is, and really what good or expert operators do, is they put their attention on the most tangible and and valuable things in any given moment. And so that's rather than thinking about your emotions, we talk a lot, I'll, I'll mention a lot, and people who listen to the show will have heard me say this before, the game doesn't give a shit how you feel, the criminal doesn't give a shit how you feel, that whatever obstacle that you're facing right now doesn't care about your feelings, so you don't need to either in that moment. not saying we don't talk about it at some time, but in that moment, paying attention to how you feel is distracting, to say the least.
2: And I've heard you talk about this concept that attention is the currency of performance. And it's. I think what happens, what's the important thing is for people like yourself that are high-performance coaches is to teach, say, an athlete what to pay attention to. So we can tell an officer, you need to have situational awareness. But what does that mean? If they do not know what to attend to, if I do not know where to put my attention, then my attention is going to be bouncing all over the place or focused on the wrong things. Because as Professor Paul Taylor will say, people will pay attention to what's important to them in the moment. And in hindsight bias, we often criticize, well, you should have been paying attention to this. But a lot of times we tell people the importance of attention, but I think what great coaches like yourself do is they teach them how, what to pay attention to, and that becomes critical. So that, uh, you know, that's what vision coaches in baseball do. They teach a a batter what to pay attention to. They teach a fielder what to pay attention to because you can't pay attention to everything. So I think that's part of the coaching piece is we need to understand the importance of attention, but then help them to understand what to attend to, to help them prepare for that.
0: Yeah, and I can only imagine that applies just as well to whether it's an explosives tech or someone who's investigating a sex crime or any of the things, the crazy human experiences that you've had, Lane, that a lot of becoming an expert or even competent at that is pattern recognition. Being able to notice that oh, I've, I've seen this before, or I've seen something similar to this, and this is how it might break. Is that fair to say that you getting better is really just about getting better at recognizing patterns and what to take into account and what not to?
1: For sure. And I, something that I also like doing is part of that manifestation piece is, is I train crappy situations before they happen. I like to think about what ifs and, you know, something that my partner and I used to do riding around together is, you know, okay, right now there's a bank robbery. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What weapons do we have? And and what would we use? And if he comes out this way, what would be our backdrop and how are we going to approach this? So I'm a huge believer in visualization and, and preparing myself for as many crappy scenarios as possible before they happen. Wow, And I've found that to be super effective and when I get to a bad situation I've already I've already kind of put myself in this position without having been in it before so
0: I'm not saying wow because I'm amazed at at the concept I'm saying wow because it absolutely mirrors what experts in other areas do. I shouldn't be surprised but there's a fantastic fable probably true story but Michael Phelps tells it himself so it is true that he visualized every single thing that could go wrong for one of his races, and it happened to be the last race where he won the Olympic record number of medals. One of the scenarios he imagined was, what if my goggles break and they fill up with water? This happened in the final, and he managed to get through it because he had prepared, he didn't panic, he didn't overexert. And I've seen this happen as well, sitting with coaching staffs. I was just talking with an NBA coach yesterday who I spent a number of years with, and the amount of times we would finish a meeting with, okay, 30 seconds on the clock, one timeout left opposition ball underneath out of bounds. What are we going to do? What's the priorities? What are they trying to do? Like, and it's just, and it would happen almost every meeting. And at first I'm like, Oh, here we go again. Like, these are just basketball nerds who love talking about it, which is true to an extent, but then we saw it actually happen in game four of a playoff series. And I was like, Oh wow. That's super valuable. Right. So really cool to hear you recount that.
1: Huge value. Yeah, definitely. It's funny because those things have happened and, It has, you get to, if you can visualize to the point where you're actually raising your heart rate and you're kind of getting, your palms are getting sweaty, um, you know, that's the goal is, is get that training when you're not in that moment. And so it makes that moment a little easier. So it's it's hugely effective and something I'll do for the rest of my career, for sure.
2: Mm -hmm. And Patty, if I can just build on that, it's uh, because that's something that I've been teaching in law enforcement for 20 some years. And as you said, that's the power of imagining. And it's not just imagining all rainbows and roses, You know, it's imagining what could possibly happen. Imagine when I get shot, then what am I gonna do? How am I gonna respond to that? How am I gonna stay focused, stay in the fight, win the fight? And I mean, another friend of mine who got shot five times at contact range, including the first round right in the face. I mean, one of the things that Marcus says is, you know what, I had listened to officers tell their story, officers that had been shot, stayed focused, stayed in the fight, won the fight, and on numerous occasions I'd imagined myself getting shot and then going home to my wife Stephanie and my children uh, Jeremy and Haley and so he said that night when I got shot it wasn't that big a shock to me in my mind I'd been there done that won that fight before and allowed me to stay calmer and fix problems and I mean he sustained some pretty significant injuries his humorous and his one arm was shattered running his, his dominant arm basically useless in the aftermath his left hand was ripped wide open he had taken a round in the fight but that's exactly what you're talking about the power of that imagery piece that we need to pay more attention to as a profession yeah
0: and really important nuance there is that lane i've got to admit when you first raised it as a, as part of your practice i was like oh no this is uh, it's someone who manifests all the positive rainbow stuff but <laughs> no but the, <laughs> the, no but the key is that when we're talking about this stuff It is really important to, like, it's nice. It feels good to imagine winning the trophy or getting the promotion or, you know, not getting shot and handcuffing the person and getting all the accolades. That's great. But in reality, the people who deal with these situations are much more likely by nature to have almost done case studies in advance of, like, hypotheticals. If this happens, then what? But it also allows us to do some form of emotional regulation in advance like you said lane like it, and if you are good at imagining that stuff it can be disturbing and it doesn't feel nice which is why a lot of people will avoid it but it is actually protective in advance because the next time it happens you kind of wrecking, oh yeah i know that i'm going to feel this or like i have felt this but if i do x the feelings won't matter they won't get in the way so really cool i, I didn't expect us to go there but we did and uh, really grateful that we did want to start to I, I don't i don't want to bring it into the episode, but I'm going to have to. It's been an amazing discussion. I'm curious for each of you who have clearly dealt with things that most of us can't imagine as listeners and you continue to both put yourself out there, Lane, and also, Brian, devote your life to helping others who are in those situations. What are your goals for the next phase of your career? Lane, what do you see for the one who dealt with that incredible incident in yourself and then went on to still become the first female SWAT member in Canada and clearly a leader in your industry what's next?
1: I just recently was promoted to sergeant and it's something that I am so excited about because it puts me in a position where I get to share some of my experiences and it you know gives me even more credibility to share that with the next generation I still love the job getting out there on the streets and wearing uniform and interacting with the public and I'm still an explosives tech and, and a firearms instructor. And I get, I have my hand in still a lot of fun things, but I definitely am moving towards a phase in my career where I want to mentor other people to, you know, aspire to do these neat things that are, you know, maybe outside the box for not specifically for women, but just for, you know, you can do anything. I'm kind of sounds cheesy, but I, I like to be that example and to share that with, with other people. I'm also really passionate about creating this culture where if you have a an occupational stress injury or a mental health injury it doesn't mean you're a broken toy you can still go on and and do amazing things and have a a very fulfilling career and so my goal right now is to work on creating that culture where peer-to-peer support and talking about you know mental health is we're creating a a safe place to do that Um, getting away from you know you're a broken toy if you have a, a mental health injury I have PTSD. I deal with triggers every day, but I'm not a broken toy. My career has been—I have been very blessed. I've had a really exciting career, and and that's because I've owned my diagnosis, and I I'm doing the things I need to to take care of myself. But that's my next chapter. Is 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 pushing the envelope on that? So
0: very cool. Uh, I love the term occupational stress injury because even the term like people ask me about mental health semi-regularly and it's a term that whilst it's well-meaning kind of is taken in the wrong way because when we're actually saying mental health often we're not referring to health or the healthy end of the spectrum right but to talk about it as an occupational stress injury that is that comes with the territory in some instances is a really cool reframe I, I love that I'm going to steal it I will quote you on it though thank you Brian how about you what are you hoping to achieve obviously you described a little bit about your purpose and In the earlier description of what you do now for a job, what are you hoping that this does for the industry at large, and maybe even outside of the industry?
2: I guess my hope would be twofold. One for the industry is that we embrace this concept of what's important now. And what's important now is to build a culture of leading, of learning of inclusion, of belonging, where we see training and learning as something that's from pre-hire to retire and see it as an investment rather than an expense and continue to invest in the training and the health and well-being of our people and create cultures where people will step up and lead on a regular basis where we create cultures of inclusion and belonging. And from the other side, my hope is that uh, people in, in the public will take time to understand the human side of law enforcement, that law enforcement is a very challenging, complex, dynamic profession where officers who are human beings are thrust in and sometimes a lot of times they do, the majority of times they do a very good job, but sometimes they're going to make mistakes. And most of the time we make mistakes, we make mistakes because we're doing the best we can with the tools we have in very complex and dynamic situations. It's interesting when people watch sports So people watch baseball, nobody expects a batter who's in a regular rotation to bat a thousand for the season. People have no expectation for the pitcher getting paid $25 million a year to throw a perfect game, every game. Most pitchers, Will never throw one in their lives. Uh, very few people will win a golden glove. And so, you know, error is part of sport and people accept that, but people are very critical of those in our profession when they do something human and make an error. So, my hope is that people will take the time to make that connection. And part of that is on us as, as the profession, but that people will learn to see that these are human beings doing a very difficult, very challenging job and they're doing the best they can in very complex situations. So I guess I've got those two hopes and uh, I'm very optimistic that we're going to be able to move in that direction.
0: Two great hopes to put out there at the end of the show. And and it makes me think, the first one in particular, makes me think of the, uh, the theory of human capital. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's it was put forward by an economist as an argument for education and learning as standard part of what we do both in the workplace and, and beyond because it it refers to the, the qualities and abilities that are kind of intangible but make humans productive, and that it's actually been shown to not only increase production, so we're better performers, but it increases individuals' incomes and that person's ability to improve their own lives and the lives of those around them. So really important concept that is actually, I, I share that with you, Brian, that's one of the core reasons behind this podcast and why it's gone from being an internal project for the U.S. Army to being shared with the world is because hopefully we can touch this on even if one person hearing Lane's story today and, and the developments that came from it, even if that prompts someone else to grow and get better, then, then it's been worth it. So appreciate you both being on here. For anyone who wants to follow up and find either of you, uh, Lane, where, where does someone track you down on the interweb? Or do I'm you try t- and stay not track downable because I'm- of your job?
1: I'm uh, yeah I stay a little bit not track down a I mean certainly I'm a police officer so I have a public you can contact me at Victoria Police I, you can find me through contacting them um, but yeah I try to keep a bit of a smaller online profile.
0: Nice and very noble of you to do that Brian yourself you're out of the service now so you can promote yourself as much as you want.
2: Yeah, I guess I really have three places there. So my main website is winningmindtraining.com. And so the programs and the courses that I offer there, I have a website called Life's Most Powerful Question, which focuses on what's important now. And there's a weekly blog post with that. And then I have a leadership website that is not law enforcement specific. It's leadership focused called daretobegreatleadership.com. So those are probably the best ways for people to find out more about me or reach out to me great
0: stuff. And I want to thank you both again, uh, Lane in particular, for sharing your experience. It's such a powerful story and and you're an incredible example of toughness in action for you to have gone on to bigger and better things after what you shared with us. So thank you so much for coming on and, and also for your service, for the way you help people day to day. And Brian, for the way you help the people who help the people. We really appreciate coming on and good luck in the future.
1: Thank you so much, Patty. Great to meet you. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate
0: the opportunity. Cheers, guys.
1: So is it got to be so
0: damn Excellent. Bustle with the best in there Simply impressive. No and or stressin'. Uh, I'm getting my right now. Put your shades on. And let me show your hand.
2: Yeah. Right.